And that's essentially what regenerative leadership creates, a, a sense of flow uh, inside ourselves and inside the system. The sense of purpose, the ability to sense into your own essence as a human being and to sense into the essence of the living organization is what's most important here because that will inform how it adapts and how it evolves through its emergent processes. The old model tells us, well, with big data, with enough data points and enough tracking, we can come up with it and we can manufacture and we can predict and so forth. Well, actually, no, um, that isn't proving to be correct. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is Giles Hutchins. Giles' new book, Leading by Nature, came out very recently. He will discuss this on the podcast. He's also the author with Laura Storm of Regenerative Leadership. Giles is a pioneering practitioner, keynote speaker, and executive coach at the forefront of the necessary revolution in leadership and organizational development that goes through this idea of regenerative leadership. He helps CEOs, any kind of CXO, leadership teams, and whole organizations become future fit amid what are volatile times, and also times when people are looking for meaning uh, within the context of the organization and the wider society. This is part of our larger conversations about what it means to engage in regenerative practice, regenerative leadership. This is a word, of course, that's being bandied around quite a bit. There's a risk that it is misunderstood, misinterpreted. Certainly a risk that many people think about regeneration as something that's purely green. Uh, and by that, I mean thinking about saving the earth, saving the planet, recycling, and so forth. But it's so much more than that. It's a change in mindset. It's a change in the way we approach the world. It's a change in the way we allow events and phenomena to unfold. Uh, as you know, I write a lot about how we are becomings, how we are processes, and regeneration is this mindset of us as phenomena and our intra-actions with the universe. And so Giles will have quite a bit to say about this on both theoretical, of course, but also practical uh, standpoints and how change can happen within organizations and how people can be themselves change leaders and, and connect with others within uh, themselves and, of course, with others in their organizations outside and, and in their lives. Check us out on our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. You'll find also our articles on Intrepid Ed News. That's www.intrepidednews.com. In the meantime, I'll leave space for my conversation with Giles. Well, hi, Giles. Really excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, I've read uh, a couple of your books now, really thinking about some of your posts as well that you put on LinkedIn, uh, your podcast that you have, uh, Leading by Nature. I'm going to start the conversation off with a question we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Well, thank you. It's lovely to be here, Benjamin. So who am I? Well, I am a unique expression of life. And this time round, I happen to be personified as Giles um, in this body and persona, um, which has led me to becoming a coach and advisor on regenerative leadership. Uh, what story do I want to tell? The story is one of the story of separation, uh, moving into the story of reconnection or regeneration, which um, is about reconnecting back into life itself, about becoming more human, more authentic, more alive, and more in harmony with life, um, which is what regenerative leadership is doing, um, although that is focused specifically at leaders within organizations. Um, the, the tenant 
is applicable to anyone. It's about helping us reconnect into life because this sense of separateness from life itself um, is creating all sorts of problems for us. And this is something that's certainly been very dear uh, to the podcast and to some of our writings, this idea of reconnection and moving away from se separation and also anthropocentrism uh, as well and reconnect to life uh, and nature itself. Before we get into that, I'll ask you um, a question that we ask all our guests, uh, which is, how do you define learning? Well, life is learning. Uh, the learning experience of life is life itself. Um, life is the most powerful richest learning uh, vehicle we could imagine um, and, and becoming more conscious of life becoming more conscious of ourselves of how we relate to each other because we are relational beings and how we relate to life and the world and consciousness itself of course deepens that learning and so life really is showing us everything we need to learn and yet of course we can also have a more formal approach uh, to this learning experience if we wish um, through education and um, I'm a fan of the what the ancient Greeks meant by educere, which is where the word education comes from, uh, which is helping uh, us draw out our essence, our evolutionary potential, uh, which is about, you know, becoming more in touch with our dharma, who we truly are, and going through an individuating process um, and relating to both ourselves, our self-awareness, and also relating to the systems around us. And uh, so it's a combination of self-awareness and systemic awareness. And of course, the word that comes up, uh, relate, relationship, relation, uh, which is really thinking about this idea of interconnectedness that you brought up about ending separation. The, the education system that is, in, you know, that most dominant today is, is more about individualizing and separating. Maybe you could think about, you could let us know a little bit about how you consider learning and these relationships and, and how it's not just about the individual. There is a dynamic that goes on between two things, two people, two animals, uh, maybe even more than that within uh, an assemblage. How, how does that work in terms of life being learning and learning being life? Well, you can look at, uh, I mean, there's, there's much to life and there's much to learn from life the deeper we go into it. As Einstein, the genius says, you know, the deeper we look into nature, the more we understand everything better. Uh, we see with new eyes and what i've found um, is the more we uh, become receptive responsive and reciprocating so let's explore those three r's the more that helps our our, our deeper learning experience our relationality so receptivity uh, is about becoming more sensitive more open more permeable to our own inner nature which you know, there's many ways to look at our inner nature. I often, in my coaching, talk about three lenses. You know, lens one being the, the voice in the head, the ego persona, uh, which crowd out, crowds out much of our experience of life. Lens two, our deeper nature, with all the shadow, constrictions, uh, projections, and um, conditioned programs that we have, but also our deeper essence, who we truly are, our, our, our inner child, and so forth. And then the field, lens three, the field, the deeper nature, um, are something that pervades life itself, something that is beyond um, our uh, individual representation. And so receptivity is about becoming more open. So it's an ego, both an ego maturation process, you know, becoming more mature, more developed, more uh, in, in harmony with how we are. But it's also an ego permeation process. It's actually an opening up. It's becoming more transparent to the transcendent and more intimate with the imminence of life. 
Um, so that is a, quite a, a, a deepening process, but that makes us more receptive, more in tune with what's going on around us. And that leads then to responsiveness. That then informs how responsive we are being or the way in which we're being responsive. Are we able to notice how we're being triggered um, due to certain condition programs or whatever? Or are we able to be fully authentic and fully there in the moment in flow? And of course, there will be varieties of that depending on the situation. So receptivity informs our responsiveness and that then informs our reciprocity. What actually happens in the exchange between you and an animal, you and a, uh, another being, you um, with another human being. It doesn't matter so much um, what the exchange is. It's more the quality of the exchange, the depth of the exchange. Now, a lot of our audience works with kids and some of these kids go anywhere from age five, seven or eight, sort of older. A lot of what you talk about has to do with the ability to be self-aware, the ability to do some inner work, look through these lenses, particularly the second lens and, and certainly the third lens. How possible is it for younger children to transcend uh, and have that self-awareness cognitively? How possible is it for teachers to tap into these lenses with younger children? Because much of the work that you do is with leaders, leaders in organizations, and of course, leaders in school. But if we think about the fact that every child can be a leader too, if we remove the barriers of age and yet are aware that there are cognitive development situations or, or obstacles, how do we work across the age spectrum? Yeah, well, there's a lot of good work that's been done on developmental psychology, that, um, a lot of detailed research that explores different models about levels of awareness or worldview or meaning making that we go through our lives, um, depending on our ages. Uh, uh, it's also worth recognizing that we, almost, we, we go through the, the traditional mythological journey in our own lives of departure, separation and return. We, we, we almost, you know, we're, we're born. Um, in the early um, years, we have this sense of oneness as much as we can understand, sense of actually probably coming from um, um, a different quality of being. And then as we become more conditioned, which we, we have to, to be functioning in society, we go through various levels of, of separation and our ego then develops and it becomes more extenuated. And there are little peaks. You mentioned seven, eight-year-old, for instance. There seems to be these sort of peaks around there, for instance. The ego goes to another stage and then goes to another stage in, in teenage years and so forth. But, you know, suffice to say, we go through these waves in our life. And I think being aware of that and the ego stage development um, of the human being is vital. Um, I'm not sure how much that really um, uh, seems to come into mainstream education at the moment. We seem to be uh, too busy just stuffing um, our minds with stuff, uh, which is probably getting in the way. Um, so, yes, I, I would be recommending that um, any um, uh, sensible approach to transforming education needs to be aware of ego stage development and therefore looking at meaning making, looking at how people go through and, uh, you know, sensing um, and allowing people to go through transformative journeys. Uh, that's what life is. It's a transformative journey. That shouldn't just happen when you're 45 years old having a midlife crisis and the wheels come off the road and you realize actually you've been chasing the wrong dream. <laughs> that should be happening very early on in life um, as part of our, if we're going to have an educating process to help humans become more of who they truly are. 
Um, so yes, there's nothing wrong with starting that early on. Um, yes, you would approach it in different ways with different language. Um, for instance, I know um, a, a head teacher of a school um, who did some really important work uh, around harmony, um, applying some of nature's principles to education for secondary school and primary school teachers. Um, so, you know, th th you just take a different approach than what I'm taking um, in terms of engaging with leaders. But the work is there, the insight, the research is there. It's more the appetite. At the moment, the appetite is around, it seems to be equipping um, our children to be able to get out there and, and operate in a model that is actually about 500 years old. I'm so glad that you brought up the fact that the system is 500 years old, born of the Renaissance, the scientific revolution, uh, Newtonian, Cartesian ways of thinking, reductionist thinking, and really schools, we sometimes think that they've been around forever, but it's really only been 200 years. And this idea of reducing knowledge to certain subjects that are compartmentalized, looking for truth, this positivist way of having objectivity as uh, the ultimate um, wonderful thing to look for in all sciences and in, in everything, that that's not something that human culture, human civilizations have had for most of its time. And and we tend to forget that this Western model of school did not exist in pre-Columbian America. It did not exist in Africa. It did not exist in most parts of the world. Perhaps China is a different story and, and, and Vietnam that also got much of its uh, education culture from China, that, that might be a, a different case. My, I guess my question is, we, we don't like to think in terms of either or, we like to think in terms of both and, yet there seems to be quite a distance in the continuum between the separation and individualization that happens in schools and the more connected, relationship-based ways of thinking that are more aligned with indigenous thinking, that are more aligned with quantum physics, that are more aligned with these new sciences and, and ways of, of looking at the world. So how do we navigate that tension between separation and connectedness, between models where disciplines are siloed and ones where life is learning, which means there cannot be silos because it's about experience? Where, where do we work with those tensions? It's always possible to have both hands. And um, let's first understand the context that, that, of why things have arisen the way they've arisen, because otherwise we don't have empathy for where we're at. And we start to blame it, and then we get into either-ors. Uh, so, you know, mechanistic materialism, whatever we wish to call it, as a worldview, um, has, has actually has its roots way back in early human history, um, long before, you know, really around the Neolithic Revolution and so forth, but really came to dominate in West, the Western psyche um, around 500 years ago um, uh, with the age of reason, the scientific revolution, and then the industrial revolution. What happened through um, uh, a more scientific management theory, which was then applied to uh, business management as well and leadership and to organizations, uh, is the result being that everything we see, because we're conditioned with this worldview, um, is you know, is conditioned through this Newtonian, Cartesian, uh, neo-Darwinistic perspective, which essentially says that life is innately competitive, red in tooth and claw, that even the gene is selfish, and that we are here, we're essentially engaged in a, uh, a process of selfish ascendancy. The whole of evolution is about sort of competing, dominating, striving, and that's how life works. And it's also got a reductive tendency, so it sees the bits and the bites, 
and it, it, it focuses in on those bites and then loses emphasis of the context. So uh, the, living, the lived environment, um, the relationships that happen in society get de-emphasized and the individuality gets emphasized. Um, what that does is then provide a byproduct of what we see today. Uh, which is some great advances in, in sort of engineering and modern medicine and transportation uh, and digitization that we all enjoy today. You know, this Zoom call here, this podcast wouldn't be going ahead without some of these advances. So there's much that it brings. The problem is it's become so extenuated, so dominant, that it's now crowded out other ways of knowing and it's undermining our humanity, it's undermining civilizations and life on Earth. Um, so it's important to recognize that's what's happened. It's that that's created this approach to education, which is essentially mechanistic and materialistic. That's what leads to this. Um, and so, you know, it, it, we can't change that without actually changing the underlying worldview. Otherwise, all that happens is you try and put in little bite sized chunks within it um, uh, rather than trying to approach the underlying mindset that creates that in the first place. So what is the other worldview, if you like? Um, the other worldview actually includes uh, the mechanistic materialism. So to your point, it, isn't, it is a both and. Um, so it transcends and includes that mechanistic materialism. We need mechanistic materialism. It's a powerful tool. It allows us to get the job done, to drive down and focus in on the parts. We need that. There's nothing wrong with, for instance, having a, a subject specially dedicated to mathematics or French and so forth. That's useful. However, the context changes. It becomes deeper. It becomes richer. We understand more about how life really works and we are able to see beyond the limitations of this current worldview. And so the new worldview emerging forward, I call quantum complexity. Um, but essentially, it's based on life. It's around living systems. And what we've seen over the last century now, but it's only really starting to become to the fore now because it takes a long time for you know, the, the old worldview to be questioned. Um, but the challenges we're finding today can't be approached and can't be solved with yesterday's logic. So we're having to now embrace this new worldview. Um, but it started with um, scientists, actually, bizarrely enough, um, profound scientists like Albert Einstein, Irvin Schrodinger, David Bohm, all finding when they look deep into reality through scientific endeavor, that actually reality was far more complex, far more deeper, far more interconnected than the mechanistic, materialistic mindset was telling us. Then a few decades later, you had the, um, the explorations into complexity theory and complex science and social studies and anthropology, uh, which led great minds like Gregory Bateson, Donna Nella Meadows, um, systems thinkers and so forth to really then look at actually our living systems, our organizations, our societies, are actually complex, messy, unpredictable, but relational with patterns of relationships in them. And that coupled with the understanding of quantum and uh, uh, reality and, and how everything is interconnected uh, contributed to a, a different view of how life works. Now, actually, that view, whilst it might seem new to us because there's these scientists exploring it, is ancient. Um, it's actually what we've understood life to be for the vast majority of our human history. So it's as if we've gone on our own little journey of departure, separation and return, just like the human being does through the seven year old and the teenage years and so forth, and then gets to a point where they realize, ah, oh, there's more to life. We're going through that. 
And so we're starting to see um, beyond the membrane of our own separation. And we're starting to recognize that life is much richer and more complex and interconnected. And those insights that that gives us can then inform how we go about educating our next generation leaders, uh, but also, you know, our children, um, friends, lovers, people that we want to live next to in our communities. Because this isn't just about equipping people to become uh, leaders or, or um, proficient in certain skills. It's actually about creating the very society that we all wish to be a part of. And one of the things about this, and I know there's this uh, there's this uh, cliche that schools are products of the industrial age, that they're organized as such, and we've all seen uh, Ken Robinson's our, our factory floor that, that, that gets the kids to go through every age. But it's actually bigger than that in, in the sense that now, even in the 21st century, yes, it's it's the school might be a 19th century model, but we're still trying to prepare kids with these 21st century skills, which you know, creativity collaboration has always been around. There's nothing special about the 21st century, but it's still workforce related. It, it, there's still an emphasis on, on this narrative of getting kids ready for the workforce. So that change of worldview is more about connecting and, and, and finding our place back in nature, although we never lost it, but we kind of sort of did in, in our own minds, rather than the workforce. That That's a significant shift right there. Well, yeah, but back to why we're doing that. The reason why we're equipping people is because we live in this hyper-competitive world. The very thing that we, we think is what we create. And it's Gandhi, I think, who said, as the man changes one's own nature, so does the attitude of the world change towards them. Um, and you, that was meant to mean try and change your attitude towards deepening uh, into reality so then the world really comes back to you but what's happened is we've actually created um, the very situation that we think which is this hyper competitive hyper hungry hyper grasping society where there are massive problems I mean you don't need me to tell you uh, you know rampant um, depression anxiety um, well-being issues as well as rampant inequality um, destroying the fabric of life on earth you know these are massive massive uh, problems. The whole of society is basically being eaten alive because of this worldview. And so we've got to the point now, we've got to the precipice where we've run out that worldview. And I'm not blaming it. It had it brought certain tools. It, it, was, it was an advancement perhaps on what went before. Um, that can be questioned at least or explored. But now we're moving into a different worldview. We need to take some of that old worldview with us. Uh, we don't need to throw it all out. But we now need to start developing that new worldview. So yes, we need to equip people to be able to get a job. Parents want that for their children. However, we need to question first and foremost, well, what is the human being? Um, uh, this person, this you asked me right up front, who am I? I'm a unique expression of life. Um, I just happen to be, you know, uh, manifesting this persona today. Well, you know, little Freddie or, or, or Tim or... or uh, Angela or whoever it is in, in the seven-year-old uh, uh, classroom, you know, who are they? Uh, what's going on? What, how much time is allowed for them to actually connect with themselves, with each other, and to actually explore their sense of meaning-making? Um, at the moment, no time is create, uh, provided for that. So they're starved of time, and therefore they're already becoming... Um, you know, competitive and grasping and extenuated because the education system is actually compounding that problem. From my reading, one of the fundamental pieces about your book is how we move along a continuum from broad categories of being an achiever, that includes being a diplomat, expert, 
uh, individualist towards that area of being regenerative leader, uh, which you describe as either being a strategist or an alchemist. But you also make the point that it's not about just moving and then we leave the rest behind. The attitudes that we have as we move along this continuum, we still keep. We still keep inside. And perhaps in times of stress, we go back to um, a little bit more achiever if we are further along the continuum. Can you tell us a little bit more about this transformation process towards being regenerative? How it's not something that once we're there, we're there and we don't move, but certainly what that entails is particularly in terms of the inner work, because we talk a lot about the inner work on this podcast and our articles. What does that look like and how does that take us also from the individual and to the organization? Yeah. I mean, what we're experiencing at the moment, and perhaps the most fundamental thing for leaders at the moment is a is the shift from a seeing the organization's machine, mechanistic, control-based, narrowing down, you know, hierarchic, sweating assets for short-term returns, um, into actually recognizing the organization as a living system, as a complex adaptive system, and transforming its inner nature and the, its outer nature. So the inner nature of the organization being its culture, its values, its ways of behaving, its decision-making protocols. So bringing in more self-managing, more agile ways of working, and cultures that allow us to bring more of ourselves to work. And there's many examples of that. I'm coaching um, a, a whole host of different organizations through that journey. So it's very real. It's happening now. This isn't something nice and fluffy. This is um, part of uh, many other movements that are happening as well, you know, like um, Frederick Deleuze reinventing organizations, you know, a lot of good work in that around the teal evolutionary business, um, Otto Sharma's work around Theory U. You know, there's massive movements around this space to helping cultures become more whole. And that's great because it means parents or would-be parents are actually engaging in work where they're going, oh, okay, this is encouraging me to bring more of myself to work. And then, hang on a minute, I'm sending my kids off to school where they're getting that pushed out of them. That doesn't make sense. And I think that has to be an important part of it. You know, e either the teachers themselves, then um, seeing that happen, or the parents. Um, so that is happening, and it's ha actually happening quite quickly in the grand scheme of things. Things have shifted just over the last five years and i would say the next five years they'll shift even more exponentially so this is how complex systems work we actually go through quite a uh, a big shift um, exponentially as one system starts to break down and another starts to break through so that's the inner nature of the organization the outer nature of the organization is also changing which is the way in which that organization relates to other organizations to customers to suppliers to stakeholders to partners, to society, to the world. Um, rather than it being transactional, cause and effect, maximizing profits, exploiting, extractive, taking value out of nature, uh, maximizing returns uh, for shareholders, we're actually shifting our view into stakeholders and also then into a systemic or regenerative understanding. So that could be organizations shifting from purely products into services or into community participation. Or it could be organizations not just reducing their negative impact, which is sustainability, but actually looking at how their products and services actually enhance life, actually contribute real value to life. So this isn't, again, this isn't rocket science. It's quite simple when you when you start thinking about it. Um, but usually, and I've been on this journey now, um, engaging in this for, for over 20 years, usually what happens is, is business leaders go, well, hang on a minute. Uh, but this doesn't make sense. You know, how do I make money? Um, I, I, who else is doing it? So you have to engage those people where they're at and explain, well, hang on a minute, this is how it can actually help you 
not just survive, but actually thrive in an increasingly volatile world. And this is actually many examples of all sorts of businesses, from manufacturers to media companies to health organizations that are engaging on this journey. And they're ex examples um, that you can learn from. And, and this is how learning from living systems, from life, from our own inner nature, our own psychology, and from the world around us, from how life works, can help businesses become future fit, become more capable of dealing with the challenges that we now face. And one of the examples in your book is Vivo Barefoot. And I bring this up because they didn't start out having this kind of um, openness, this kind of uh, willingness to be to have more regenerative approaches. It's, it's a significant leap of faith to have someone say, hey, you know, I'm interested in this. Maybe you can guide us a little bit through what that might look like from being a more mechanistic, linear organization to one day some crazy man or woman up on, you know, says, hey, let's do this. How, how does that happen in your experience? And I know that, you know, we're generalizing every every company, every organization has its own story, but, but what patterns do you see? Yeah, well, I think there's already quite a few people. Um, I, I would say that there's people on the cusp, um, sort of slightly, you know, sort of starting to become aware that something's wrong, um, that they're that they're engaging, that dissonance is setting in in them, and so they're going through a wobble. They know that actually this sort of achiever, just got to get the job done, just got to work for the holiday or work for my pension, is is not working. There's something wrong with it. And they can see that perhaps the organization they're working for, okay, it might be trying to be more sustainable, but actually it's creating a lot of stress and strain in the process and something's not right. So usually I start working with people who are already questioning um, and more and more people are doing that, by the way, these days. And I think COVID and other shifts, and conflict and climate emergency, all of these things contribute to people starting to question. So it's a very interesting time. So that dissonance happens within a leader. Um, and then that dissonance and through coaching, which is the work I do, um, help leaders gain insight. And that is bending the beam of awareness out from out there, which is usually what people are involved with, entrepreneurs and leaders, you know, just making change happen. And actually bringing that awareness internally to start exploring, well, what's going on? Where are you at? What is making sense? What isn't making sense? What is some of the old stuff that you're holding on to? Um, uh, and let's explore those patterns, those um, programs that you're operating to, and let's question them. So you invite them to start opening, which is difficult, actually. Um, it can be liberating, um, but it can also be challenging because the very constructs uh, that helped you become successful, you start recognizing are getting in the way of your evolution. And uh, we're programmed to actually want to hold on to those, uh, especially when times are tough or, or times are challenging. So then helping a leader or a group of leaders or a leadership team through that change whilst the numbers aren't great or shocks have happened in the supply chain which is what happened at vivo for instance you know they had to start air freighting um, some materials in because of covid and all the profits were hit and challenging um, their carbon footprint all sorts of challenges were happening uh, to stay with this journey when it would be so easy to go back to just sticking to the knitting to doing things as we always did because that's how they work so you need courage and that's where courage comes in and practice and patience. So I think dissonance, then insight, and then into courage uh, and practice and patience. So working with leaders and leadership teams 
And then what I also do is work with what I call systemic enablers. And I talk about this in the book, Leading by Nature, in quite detail, how you can identify people in the organization that are on the cusp, that regardless of their hierarchy, and in fact, the more diverse they are in terms of age, creed, culture, and gender, but also perceptual rise in different parts of the business, uh, the better, because they bring in different perspectives. Um, you bring a, a small group of people together in a circle, a sort of action learning circle, and we check in every so often about how is the living system doing? What, what can we sense that is the living system's going through? Where is their stuckness? Where are their flows? Where are their acupuncture points? Where are their moments in the living system that might be starting to break through? And what can we work with? And, and how can we cross-pollinate that with other parts of the organization? We start doing what I call organizational acupuncture which are very small pinpricks. You know, these aren't big investments. You don't need big change management um, programs. Actually, small um, uh, inventions and, uh, and in interventions that actually change things, that unlock energy and that help people shift differently. So people start to gain confidence in this shift and start realizing, well, hang on a minute. This is just how I am. I don't actually have a manager and a leader at home um, telling me when to go to the cinema or how to pick up my kids from school. So why do I need a manager and leader at work? Why am I leaving part of myself um, at home when I go into work? Why can't I bring more of myself? But that takes time and you've got to have patience and practice and courage to go through that. And it does need some strong leaders. We're lucky with Vivo Barefoot to have Galahad Clark as the CEO who really, you know, determined to stay with the journey um, even in times of challenge. And then that inspires other companies, other companies in their value chain, advisors, partners and so forth have seen the journey they're on and go, wow, this is this is amazing. How can we how can we get involved in this as well? And really where you're talking about is uh, the, the, one of the quintessential uh, factors or, or characteristics of the of the living system, which is being nested and, and this idea of fractals as well, where when we work on the individual, then eventually the group, the company. Uh, maybe the industry, whatever, the, the ecosystem. It, it's the same process of from inner to outer. Yeah, it's, that's, that, and this is the beautiful thing. When, one, when we start working more with how life works, we realize we don't have to push so much. You know, that, that story of separation, that story of hyper-competition is actually very tiring and it requires a lot of energy, outer achiever mindset energy, and we get burnout. Whereas actually when we start working with our own energy and, and being more integrated with our own energy and we start working with the energy of life around us and actually seeing life as a learning experience and knowing when to what to learn from, when to push, when to pull, when to have a bit more yin and when to have a bit more yang, all of that, then we start to create a more flowing environment. And that's essentially what regenerative leadership creates, a, a sense of flow uh, inside ourselves and inside the system. But to be clear, flow does not mean some nice gentle stream. It means you're constantly on the edge. You're actually surfing the edge of chaos. You're surfing the wave, if you like, which is where the real tension is. So you've got to get used to, to working with tension. And many of us, and this is back to schooling again, um, we've actually been sort of conditioned that easy, you know, get away from an issue or sit, sit down on the sofa or switch off is, is comfortable um, and that's sort of our sort of go-to place. And actually, if we have to work or we have to push ourselves, go through attention, it feels uncomfortable. So back to education, we should actually be encouraging children 
to get used to working with tensions and see how tensions operate in life. Synergies, where you have complementary tensions, revealing something. Or dinergies, where you actually have conflicting tensions. How do we work with conflict? How do we transmute conflict? Not break conflict down into just resolving it into right and wrong, but actually working with that. And then, so this organization as a living system is actually riding this tension all the time. It's emerging, it's evolving. And so that requires a level of developmental advancement for individuals um, to really get comfortable with themselves. And not everybody wants to do that. Some people just want to go to work, do a job and go home. And to be truly inclusive, a regenerative organization, I believe, needs to also make space for those people that just want to come and do a job and go home. And that's OK, rather than trying to make it into a place where you've got to be really developmental. So we should have a real diversity of people in the organization and be able to work with all of those types of people. And that's where selecting or identifying or bringing forth those systemic enablers is so important. People who are curious, interested, energetic, want to move with the organization towards that North Star, bringing in who they are, their essence, their ideas, their perspective. It's a critical part of moving an organization towards a more regenerative mindset, understanding and embracing that it is a living system and taking advantage of the dynamic energy flows that ensue. Yeah, uh, and working with them um, is also part of their own journey. Uh, it's interesting, so um, at Viva Barefoot, for instance, been working with them now for coming up for two years and noticing how they've changed over that time. We haven't had to take them through any inverted commas formal education process, but just by them engaging in the system and engaging in simple practices like deep listening, like dialogue, um, um, sharing and, and listening and, and, and playing with how to become a more self-managing system, they themselves are now able to notice when they're in adult-adult relationships, when they're in parent-child. And, you know, many of them talk about how this is affecting them in their whole life. You know, it's, it's changed how they go about parenting their children, how they engage with their children, how they uh, engage with friends and family outside work. So they themselves have gone through a shift um, as a result of just being invited into a journey of just speaking, listening, um, sensing, developing that receptivity and cultivating that responsiveness. You know, it, it often doesn't need a top-down, um, heavy-duty pedagogy. It actually just needs the holding of space to allow us to become more of who we truly are. And so this brings in my mind a question of the strategic plan. This idea, this this linear plan, or it doesn't have to be linear, but you know, mostly they are with KPIs and and uh, and management by objective and everything like that. Where this is where we're going to be in five years, and everybody's got their 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 Excel row that they're responsible for. That compared to maybe a more of a I don't know if North Star is the right term, but but this a, a lot like we're heading in this general direction. We might pick another North Star somewhere. I I don't know, but but this emergence. How does that work? And and am I using too many cliches? <laughs> Um, well, again, it's back to this transcend and include. We need we need something. Um, there's there's a, there's a reason why a left brain hemisphere wants a plan, because um, it gives us a sense of level of comfort and, and, and confidence and so forth that people can corral around. And some people just need that. So we can't throw that all out and just say, well, everything's emergent, so just forget it. But we need to also recognize that actually the plan is just there to give us comfort. Let's not take it too seriously, because actually we can't plan for three years time, let alone five years time. So by all means, have some guides, 
by all means have some plans, have some north stars or load stars or have some some but actually the sense of purpose, the ability to sense into your own essence as a human being and to sense into the essence of the living organization is what's most important here because that will inform how it adapts and how it evolves through its emergent processes. So much is changing, so many different variables you can't possibly plan for. It. And again, the old model tells us, well, with big data, with enough data points and enough tracking, we can come up with it and we can manufacture and we can predict and so forth. Well, actually, no, um, that isn't proving to be correct. Um, that's not to say that we don't, it's not useful to have those data points, but if you're not careful, you actually get yourself caught up in spreadsheets rather than listening to the organization. So it's both. It's both and. Yeah, I'm not saying we should throw out big data or analytics tools. I think they're really useful. Uh, and actually, much of some of the advanced analytics companies I know uh, actually stress how important it is to balance these tools with real, you know, with embodied knowing, with intuition, um, with experience, um, with what's going out there in the field. So um, often some of the uh, people I coach, the CEOs I coach, now call themselves, rather than chief executive officers, chief ecosystem officers. So they're actually sensing into the system. Their job is, and we're now actually exploring in some companies, actually heading up particular people who are like um, systemic, um, uh, in charge of the, the system, maybe CSOs, you know, rather than chief sustainability officers, they're actually chief system officers. They're actually looking at the organization, how, where the organization needs to adapt and evolve, and also scanning the whole ecosystem, the market. And that's going to be more and more important. Um, shifting from a kind of strategy, you know, planning it all out, and then having an, a plan to execute it, um, to actually scanning the system and sensing where the system needs to make place, you know, place bets and, and invest and, and move forward. So yes, you need a North Star, but actually just as important as a North Star is a feeling of how are you moving through the water? Um, how, what feels right, what doesn't feel right? How am I learning? So you have a, um, a back, background plan uh, of the picture, if you like, a backdrop that you're moving towards, your core value um, that you're creating, your, your mission. Uh, and then you have a middle ground, which is, you know, this is how we're going to deliver certain value. And these are the markets that we're focusing on and so forth. And then you have a foreground, which is constantly adapting and changing based on how you are attuning to what's coming up. So what kind of advice would you give to, say, maybe a teacher, a middle manager, someone who's not the top boss in a school who wants to really start to change the organization? Where can they find that first acupuncture point and be successful against really what is an extremely conservative um, field and, and domain education? Yeah, well, I think I think things are changing. Um, so I think one needs to work with the, where the cracks of light are. Um, so uh, uh, f sense out either where that where there's dissonance or or you know people are questioning the current um, way. Or work with people who are already starting to prototype the new, either in your school or elsewhere. So you gain energy from that. Otherwise, it's going to be a thankless task if you're trying to do that on your own. So find out who your allies are. Uh, maybe start identifying your own systemic enablers in the school, some, some teachers, but also some perhaps some parents. And uh, allow them to sense and respond. 
How could things be done differently? How could you prototype some small projects? You know, start small, do some small things, see what works and then learn from them. That's how living systems work. Rather than massive cultural changes, um, which is really expensive and, and high risk, start to explore, you know, who are, who are your key people that you can start working with? And they might be able to then identify their own systemic enablers around them. And before you know it, you're actually getting to a point where you have six or 10 percent of people actually starting to think differently. And this is interesting. Um, living systems do not require a majority of people to start thinking differently for the system to shift. It's actually and we see this in metamorphic processes within nature, too. It actually is, is quite a small percentage of people need to start thinking differently and doing things differently for the system to start shifting. Some sociological studies say that can be as little as. 10%. So start working with those people. Um, don't try and change the whole system. Start seeing what can happen. I, I, I see at my, our local primary school, for instance, already from the homework that my children come back to, you know, so it's just a, a mainstream school. Um, actually, you know, they're doing things differently. I can think, oh, this is interesting. You know, and I, I think people are, are experimenting and, uh, and testing things out. Well, listen, Giles, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. I, I'm going to... Um ask you one more question. Actually, I'll ask you two questions. The first is, what book are you reading right now? Uh, a couple. Um, I'm, I'm reading uh, Overstory by uh, Richard Powers. And amazing, amazing book. Yeah, amazing book. Um, uh, Ian McGilchrist's um, uh, The Matter With Things, which is massive. Um, and uh, Charles Eisenstein's um, The Coronation. So yeah, a, a mixture just to keep my diversity going. And the second question I'll ask you is really the et cetera question. Anything that's on your mind or, or what is your future looking like? How, how are things looking for you in the, in the short and longer term? Um, what's occupying you? Spending more time in nature, um, keeping myself true to the work. Um, uh, uh, as I said earlier, I like this process of becoming, um, becoming more transparent to the transcendent and more intimate with the imminence of life. And that is the art of living, which I am constantly working on uh, in my own life. Um, so, for instance, last night we slept out in the woods here, me and my two daughters and wife. Um, lovely experience. And I'd like to do more of that, really. So August, I'm, I'm taking a bit quieter um, and finding a bit a bit of a better balance. Um, so, yeah, things are, things are good. Uh, things are changing in the world. Um, the very things I've been talking about for a couple of decades um, uh, seem to be uh, landing more uh, well with people. Um, so I think this can be a good time as well as a highly challenging and confusing time. It can also be a good time where we start to sense into the art of the possible. How do people get in touch with you? I know you have a website. Is there other ways? What's your URL? I yeah, I think the website gileshutchins.com is probably the easiest. Um, you can find the book there. Or you can find the book Leading by Nature on all major channels as well. There's a podcast on my website as well, which might be interesting for people. Um, yeah, I think probably gileshutchins.com is the easiest place to find out about me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can check out our website where you'll find articles, resources, podcast episodes, presentations, whatever it is that your heart may desire on www.coconut-thinking.design and our articles along with those of other 
thinkers and writers are on Intrepid Ed News, www.intrepidednews.com. Look forward to your comments, subscribe to the podcast, give it five stars. In the meantime, look forward to our next conversation and speak to you soon. Bye-bye.